0: Welcome friends, you are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's word with you today. Thanks for joining us. Um, now, I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience, if you've done like a Bible read-through, and you get up in the morning and you're like, I really need something to help me get through this day. I can't wait to see what the Holy Spirit has given me in the scriptures, and you open your your Bible to that that day's reading, and you hit a genealogy. And uh, if you ever had that experience, I don't know if your first thought is, yes, this is what I was looking for. This is so exciting. Or like, wait a minute, like, why is this in the Bible? Do I have to read each name to technically get through the whole scripture? And uh, one of the things that we really have to decide about how we approach scripture is that when we run into a part of the Bible that if we were the Holy Spirit, we probably would have edited out, then we have a choice to make at that moment. One is we can say, I guess this isn't relevant to me, um, and you know maybe there are things that kind of got in the Bible that maybe shouldn't be there. That, that could be kind of even subtly one of the ways that we interpret how, how we approach parts of the Bible that are kind of confusing or, or strange to us. The other way, to approach those those moments is to ask the question, is there something that I don't believe, that God believes, that is the reason this is in the scriptures? Like imagine that over the thousands of years, all of the scribes who had to write each one of those names uh, on all those genealogies. If you read through the Bible, there's a lot of genealogies in the Bible. So one of the questions I'm just asking is why? Why are they there? Like what does that say about God? And one of the things that we need to understand is that there's something that God believes about family that we really culturally no longer believe, and that is that God is obsessed with the idea of the multi-generational nature of family. That is so important to God. These family lines, these stories that we're a part of, that have gone on for many, many generations, God cares a lot about that. That's why God, when he reintroduces himself, to the Israelites, when he wants to rescue them from Egypt, he says to them, he introduces himself first as, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying, I am that multi-generational God. And then when he pulls them out of the wilderness and reveals his glory to Moses on Mount Sinai, he says, I'm gonna declare my glory to you. And then as he passes by Moses, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and grateful, pouring out love to a thousand generations. There's something about God that is really rooted in how he wants to not just bless us as individuals, but as multi-generational families. So I wanna talk to you guys about that. That's what we've been talking about all weekend is that God's design for the family is very different in the way the Bible describes it than the way our culture describes it. We tend to be one generation, we reset, Many of us don't even remember the names of our great-grandparents. It isn't relevant to us because we don't think of ourselves as part of a family line. But God does. God knows that story. He cares about that story. And there's ways in which we can steward that. So why is flourishing family so important? Why do we want to invest in this? And it's important to understand that in this story of Scripture, God wants to reveal himself as a father. And so when fatherhood is destroyed in a culture... It's not just that we lose connection with our own children or with our own parents, it's that we begin to lose sight of who God is, that God's a father, that he loves us as a father, that we are sons and daughters in his kingdom, that Jesus' favorite title for himself is as a son. These are really important elements for us to understand the gospel and to reflect the gospel to the world. In fact, Paul says marriage itself is really an illustration of the gospel, of God's love for for Jesus' love for his bride, the church. And so what we wanna do is, I wanna take the risk of doing something really practical, give you guys like one tool. If you were to build a multi-generational family, and that is to craft a weekly multi-generational family meal, I'm gonna give you guys steps and try to help you understand how to do this. But first of all, I wanna talk about why this is such a big deal, why this meal is important. And it starts with trying to answer a very important question. What is your idea of the good life? So philosophers have learned um, for thousands of years, that you can deconstruct somebody's basic understanding of life and their values by having them answer this question. And so in philosophy courses, this is discussed all the time. What is the good life? Let's talk about it. What, what, what does it look like? What is it What is it like to experience peak life? And I remember the first time I encountered some somebody actually practically answering this question for me. Um, I was graduating from high school. I know today's kind of grad Sunday for some people and so I was graduating from high school and we were having a big graduation party and in the midst of that party an older gentleman came and kind of put his arm around me and said Jeremy come here like i want to talk to you for a second so he took me off to the side he said look what you're about to experience your years in college those are gonna be the best four years of your life enjoy it and I was like whoa he answered the question that what is peak life Peak life is the college experience. And our culture, a lot of us believe that that's true, that that is the peak time of life. We believe that when we are having the least amount of responsibility in life and the most opportunity to indulge our impulses, that is peak life. We have to be very careful with how we answer this question. And we need to talk about this. Does the scripture give us a vision for what life looks like, what is the good life? If you're going to just kinda of pinpoint a moment of what, what, ex, what it is to experience the good life, what does that look like? There's a particular chapter in the Bible that I believe is, was actually written to answer this question. I wanna read it for you guys. It's a very short chapter, it's Psalm 128. Really kinda of picture what the psalmist is describing here. He says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That is an amazing picture. He's describing really a grandfather and a grandmother around a table where they get to see and experience family around a family table, not just with their children, but with their grandchildren. What he's saying there is that the experience of peak life goes up the older you get. You can keep living, you can get to experience and see more of the generations of your family to have that experience around that table. And so he says, thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. And I think we may be losing sight of the beauty of this picture. Because I believe that, that even a young father who, or a young mother who has this picture of the good life, they're going to build a different kind of family. They're going to think about the future differently. And that's what I want to really kind of help us think about uh, t- today. Because there's this, this a lot at stake. If this is the good life, what does it look like to actually experience this? What's interesting as well is that that if you talk to those who, who really study literature and answer the question like how do you figure out the point of a book or a story, they will tell you that the most important thing is how it ends because the editorial decision of how a story ends tells you so much about the meaning. And Did you know that our story ends around a table right at the end of the book of Revelation? We read about about the father saying, I'm going to be inviting you in to the marriage supper of the lamb. And so what are we gonna experience is a wedding banquet where the father is sitting at the head of the table and God is finally building this household. He's got a bride beautifully prepared for his son. And we get to sit there and experience this peak Psalm 128 family table experience in the kingdom of God. That, that is the picture that we need to have in our minds and our hearts. That's what God is wanting to build. That's why so much of what we do in, in building our families, building the church, reaching the nations with the gospel, is we're, we're reaching towards that peak experience of being able to sit at a table with our Father. Uh, and so th- this is a really, uh, really important picture. And so what I wanna talk to you guys practically is how do you craft a family meal? How is it that we can begin to rehearse and build the skill of having a meal like that. Like we can do that. And today I'm not gonna talk to you guys about the, what oftentimes when we talk about family meals, what we're describing is kind of the the weekday uh, dinner where we get together and try to sync up really quick and have a quick meal and catch up before we all go our separate directions. Those meals are important. We need to be careful to protect those meals, to enjoy those meals, to stay in sync with our family, Uh, during those meals, but I wanna talk to you about a different category of a family meal. This is where you have nowhere to go after the meal. This is where you sit and get to experience the timelessness of that family multi-generational meal. What is it like to craft one of those? Why is it important? Now our culture does do this a little bit, right? Um, and usually if you talk to people and ask, okay, when do you experience that? When does the whole family get together? Lots of extended people, you know, family members. And, and usually probably the, the place where we experience that in our culture the most is, is Thanksgiving. Some, some of us also for Christmas dinner, uh, but many, many people experience this literally like one time a year. And when that comes around on Thanksgiving, if you guys are like on social media or listen to the radio, there's all these memes that people begin to throw out about that family meal, like, oh, this... Okay, you can get through it, be careful not to bring up these topics, and you know, it's gonna, yeah, it might be miserable. Now, some of you might get, have a magical experience on Thanksgiving, and you've got a you know, really cohesive family, but, but I would say more than half of the people in our culture, they don't experience a peak experience, because it's so rare. Like, we're so out of practice. And so when we get to that meal, we're not as deeply connected to our family members. And so it feels a lot of what we're experiencing during those family meals is is just this feeling of awkwardness, regret, confusion, shock even. Like, oh, wow, I can't believe you believe that or think about that or so there's we're so out of practice that that we this is the last place that a lot of people think that you want to go to for life, but there it is in Psalm 128 describing that the idea that, that this is a really important experience that we need to be cultivating and crafting. Now, I didn't I didn't have a lot of hope for this, this particular category. I didn't grow up in a culture where we did a good job of crafting these kinds of family meals, um, but I did spend some time in Jerusalem. I've lived in Israel, and this was one of the things that really blew my mind. Like We saw every single week families like going off to be with their parents, kids in their 20s, their 30s with their kids. It was constant that on Friday, there would be this sort of exodus from Jerusalem or to wherever the family home is to experience every single week, this thing called Shabbat, this Shabbat dinner. That's the way that they do it in their culture. And I was like really confused, like wow, why do you do that? Now, I think one of the things that really caught my attention is that I I don't think that there's an accident that the fact that this is such a ingrained part of that Jewish culture Um, that they are also, they tend to be the kind of culture that that stays together and has connections multi-generationally. If you craft a a weekly family meal that's multi-generational, I don't think you will be able to stop your family from becoming a multi-generational family. By that I mean there's connections between the generations that are meaningful and important and that you get to experience that that beauty. This tool is that powerful. In fact, when Jewish families move from wherever they are to America, usually there's such a breakdown of family and individualism But with most cultures. But what what we've discovered is that within Jewish families that continue to practice this weekly family meal, they tend to be able to, even in our hyper-individualistic culture where people scatter so often, they tend to maintain that connection. So I wanna talk about what we can learn. Now, there, you can craft a family meal in lots of different ways. You don't have to do it in ways that it's, that's, that's similar to, to the way that that's done, it's done in Israel. Um, we're not saying that you have to become Jewish. What we're saying is that there's a lot we can learn from a culture that has persisted in this practice. And we can borrow things that, that are principles that we might be able to incorporate into our family that might help us figure out how to do this, because this is not easy. We've lost this. In fact, we live in homes. It's interesting, if you go into older houses, there are these formal dining rooms that oftentimes aren't built into houses anymore. And I remember when when, uh, April told me that, that her grandmother, she would work every single year to add one more place setting of China because she was so excited about about having these, these family meals. And we have lost a lot of that, and many of us don't even, we, we've never even experienced that within our homes, or we have, but it's, it's a part of the past. And so I wanna talk about this, uh, this practice and see what we can glean from this idea of the Sabbath or the Shabbat. Shabbat is the, is the Hebrew way of saying the word Sabbath, because the way that Jewish families do this is they kick off their day of rest with a meal with this sort of timeless family meal. In Genesis one, we read that it was evening and morning the first day, which means that their days, unlike ours that begin at midnight, their days begin at sundown. And so when they enter into their Saturday, their Saturday really launches off on Friday evening. And so when you're in Jerusalem, it's such a weird experience. People are like rushing around Friday afternoon, super like, like uh, antsy, getting ready, getting everything prepared because everything shuts down when the Sabbath sirens go off. And when you hear those Shabbat sirens, this sort of peace just settles over the city. Everyone is with their family, everyone is around a family table, and if you listen really closely, the only thing you can hear is the sound of a father chanting blessings over his sons and daughters. That is a really cool experience. I think that creates a different kind of family. So again, what can we learn from this? Now, the Sabbath is not something that I believe that we are obligated to keep. A lot of people have this in a very religious sort of category in their mind and heart. Um, But what we learn from scripture, like Jesus says in Mark, while he was walking through some grain fields and his disciples were eating, um, they were accused of breaking the Sabbath for harvesting. And Jesus says this really important thing about the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. There's something about the Sabbath that is designed to meet our needs. What is that? Now, it can be and it is that we need to experience rest. But one of the things that these Jewish families have discovered is that one of the requirements that the Sabbath can allow us to keep, one of the one of the things that we could get to experience can be this familiness, this family table experience. Now, we know that this is not something that we, again, are obligated to do. Paul says, about the Sabbath, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies, or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. So the gospel is that Jesus came, he fulfilled all the requirements of the Sabbath, he fulfilled all the requirements of the law, we have taken on his righteousness, he's taken our sin, and so we get to experience whatever parts of life we want to experience, in Christ, we don't have to think that if I don't keep all these requirements, that I'm not, I'm not good with the Lord. We, we are saved uh, by and through our faith in what Jesus has done for us. That doesn't mean that there aren't amazing lessons or tools that we can glean from the scriptures about how to build family. And so this is one of those tools that you can take whatever elements you want Throw out whatever elements don't really fit the family culture you wanna build, but I think, again, there's a lot we can learn about this. Now, one of the things I love about the idea of crafting a meal that launches into the Sabbath is that there is a lot of connections between rest and the gospel. So there is a, in, in, when, when uh, Moses was going back over the 10 commandments, he got to the fourth commandment, which is the commandment about the Sabbath. He says, remember that you were once slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out with his strong hand and powerful arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to rest on the Sabbath day. So the Sabbath is really a time to remember the gospel, that we were slaves to sin. And so when we get around our family table and we tell, tell our kids, hey, remember, we were slaves to sin. Our family was lost but Jesus came and he rescued us from that and so that's the rest we get to enter into. That is what we're going to get to to experience. So when we're thinking about crafting a family meal, however you guys wanna think about how to do that that fits for your family, there are really three things that we've learned really are important to sort of prioritize, especially in the early stages of crafting this kind of a, a family experience. One is you need to make it enjoyable. This has got to be a lot of fun, especially if you have young kids. You want to do things that are special with this time that make them look forward to it. That make them think that this is their favorite meal. One of the really simple things that we did is we just had sparkling grape juice that was holy, like set aside for just this one meal. Well, you do something like that, and your kids don't get to experience that uh, during a normal weekday, and they'll quickly say, "Hey." What, what is that thing that we were doing? What is that meal? We, like, can we do that again? And so whatever kinds of things you can add, traditions that are really meaningful, that will really touch each member of your family, if you have young kids, teenagers, grandkids, how can you craft a meal and th- that will make them, help them look forward to it? Make it sustainable. In the early stages of cre- creating any new tradition, there's always a huge amount of pressure to try to make it epic on day one that's very dangerous to do with new traditions because you do it once, and you're like, that was really hard, really exhausting, I don't, that was fun, but I don't know if we can keep, keep doing that. So in the early stages, we learned to, to, do, to make it really simple at first, what can we sustain? Like we, we kind of increased over time a lot of the more sort of fun elements or elements that made it a little more complicated but maybe more meaningful. Um, those are things we wanna introduce in stages. Our family practiced a Sabbath with just our kids for about seven years. Um, and we experienced this family meal. We were practicing it for a long time. We made it really simple for a long time. Simple food, you know, simple traditions, added one little tradition at a time, but over the years it got easier and easier and easier, more ingrained part of our family culture. That's when we began to take the risk of inviting you know, extended family members you know, to one-off, one different meals and see how that went. And if that was really healthy, fun, good for them, we enjoyed it. Then we started inviting them more often until finally we got to the place after about seven years into our family meal experience where both my parents and my wife's parents wanted to come every single week. And we were able to invite them and enjoy that together. The third thing is make it meaningful. Like there are meaning, meaningful elements that you wanna inject into this app. So I'm gonna give you guys four quick steps for how to craft a meal like this. The first is that to make it meaningful, the father needs to, and the head of the household, somebody in this family meal needs to proclaim the good news. And this for me was super awkward at first. Like I I was a youth pastor for about eight years and it was really easy for me to get in front of like a youth group and, and teach. But I felt like, you know, getting in front of my family and saying things, you know, even for two or three minutes at the beginning of a family meal to really proclaim the gospel that was challenging for me. It felt awkward because I, as I, when I was growing up, all of the kind of faith-based activities that our family participated in all happened in the church and not in the home or around the table. And so to introduce this at the table was a new thing for me. And I had to sort of overcome over the first three or four months of a tradition like this, just the awkwardness of a new tradition. So you got to kind of really work through that. But one of the favorite things that we began to do to proclaim the good news is just ask really simple questions and have an interaction with the kids or the other people that are there. One of the questions that we started to, to talk about is what are the two kinds of rest? We're about to enter into the gospel. Like, let's experience that. And the two kinds of rest the kids would say is, well, there's the body rest, which is when you're really tired and you need a break. But there's another kind of rest. There's soul rest. And an example of soul rest is if you've ever had the experience of, working through like a really hard project, you've been working on it for months, and then maybe right in the middle of the week you complete the project. And you still have energy left, but you're done. It's finished. And so you get to sit back and enjoy what was already accomplished. That is soul rest, and that's what we get to experience in the gospel. The gospel, because when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He did the hardest work we will ever have to do. So right now, around this table with this family we're going to experience and enter into that deep rest knowing that we have a secure relationship with our heavenly Father through what Jesus did for, our, for us on the cross that, that was that is, those are exciting moments to have as a family around a table Another step we like to do and this is another thing we borrowed from um, from the from the culture in Israel is that the mother lights a candle um, because if you're trying to do any kind of restful like we're trying to just be present, for this meal, for this experience, oftentimes it's tough on the mom, right? She's in a place where she's used to really feeling like she's you know, working. And so in that culture, the mother lights the candle. And so April, my wife, she will light the candle and just say a blessing and we'll talk about how this represents Jesus as the light of the world. And so we get to, again, experience and proclaim the gospel and begin our day of rest. It's also really fun, by the way, with the candles because you know, you wanna have, especially, for your own senses, some way to, to, to differentiate when you're entering into a different, a different space. One of the things that Abraham Joshua Heschel says about the Sabbath in his book is that it's like a cathedral in time. He says, you Christians build cathedrals in space, but there's also in Genesis when God said about the seventh day, he made it holy, he created a sacred time. And so it's really hard to experience sacred time in your own house. And so you want to have reminders. And I remember we were trying to even come up with this idea of like, what kind of candle? Like, how do we do that? I wanted our house to smell different on the Sabbath. And so I went to Yankee Candle and I asked the lady that worked there, I'm like, what is the one scent that you will never retire? Like, if my grandkids want to experience the same candle, like, what is it? She's like, oh, she walked me over to this, you know, particular a part of the store, and said, "This we started with this scent, and it's always going to be here as long as our company's here." And so we've been buying that one scent. That's just an example of like a fun little traditional thing. It's just something our family does. Um, but we li- li- light that scent, and on the Sabbath we light different candles of that scent around the house, so that the Sabbath feels different. You know, we want to have symbols, ways of getting our senses involved in in experiencing this kind of family-ness. Another experience that's really beautiful is to bless the children. To say that at this table, just like the Psalm 128 described, everyone is a either a father, mother, son, or daughter. We are inside of a family experience. And so one of the questions I always ask at the beginning of our Sabbath is, has God blessed our family with any sons? And then the sons stand up and then, usually, the oldest member of the family, the my dad, will come and bless the sons and say, may, the, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. May he give you the faith of Abraham, the heart of David, and the righteousness of Christ as you build our family from generation to generation. And then we all ask, Has God blessed our family with any daughters? And we have a similar blessing that the oldest uh, female member of the family blesses the daughters. And so, we get to experience these blessings that come down from the generations. And that really helps us usher into this, this kind of family experience. And if you guys are thinking about, okay, how does this apply to if you have, you know, teenagers or young kids or if you're a grandparent, one of the things that we tried to do to try to recapture this was that we knew that this was new for our family. And my parents and my wife's parents, when we first were started to do this, they were a little bit like, what are you doing? They were kinda of skeptical. They are like, what was wrong with the way we raised you? Like, There's all kinds of like, like red flags or different things. If you start a new tradition, it can be hard on a family. And so you want to be really winsome and really careful about how to invite people in uh, over time and in a good way. And one of the things that we like to do, because we were at the, at the beginning of this tradition very isolated as a family. Our whole extended family lived in other states. But when they would come in to town from from the different places, we we would craft, we got better and better at crafting this kind of family experience. And they would enter into this experience. And over time, they just started enjoying it more. They would come and visit more often. And then over the last 15 years, virtually every member of our family ended up moving closer to us so that we could have more family experiences. Because people love this, like, we need this so badly. This is something that we're missing. And part of the reason we're not experiencing it is we just don't have the tools or the equipping to know how to craft these kinds of of experiences. The last thing I'll say, the last step, is that you want to make it fun and meaningful. There's different ways to do that. There's things like playing games. My dad, when he was growing up, he was an only child, and so he used to tell stories about how he was so bored as a kid, he would play Risk and Monopoly all by himself, all day long, <laughs> and uh, and so I, I know that he loves board games, but had that you know, tough experience as a child, and so we love to let my dad lead board games. He loves that, to be able to do that with his grandkids, and so sometimes, after in one of these meals, we do that. We also love to tell family stories. Oftentimes my mom will just kind of like, you know, be mentioning like a certain date will hit the calendar and she'll like, wow, I think my mom would have been like 106 today, you know? Or this was my parents' anniversary or I remember my grandfather, like there was something, he died on this day. And so when those would come up, those prompts, I would just tell my mom, hey, could you bring some pictures and just sort of share some family stories with our family, with your grandkids um, about that day? Why is this meaningful to you? And man, our kids get to experience the richness of that. I remember one of the most um, amazing experiences we had of that was that on Veterans Day, I began to ask my dad and my father-in-law to share stories. They both were in the military. And one Sabbath, my father-in-law came in for Veterans Day. I had sent him an email and said, hey, it's Veterans Day. Would you mind sharing some stories? He walked in the house on, for our family meal with a box and I was like, whoa, that's cool. So we all had our, our meal, kind of everyone gathered in the, in the living room and he opened this box and he said, you guys, um, what I did uh, during the Cold War ha- has just been declassified this month. And so I've never been able to share with any of you what I actually was doing in the military. So let me show you what I was doing. And he pulled out of this box like these different models of satellites and rockets and all these different, and he spent two hours going through with us all of these stories that none of us had ever heard before. And imagine my kids were sitting there going, whoa, this is, this is really deep, like the roots that you get to experience when your, your grandfather begins to share stories like this. And now what was crazy for us was two weeks after he shared that, he died suddenly. And we recorded that whole thing. And because we had this family meal, we were able to capture that for the generations. And so that was really, really powerful. I remember one Sabbath, my grandmother came, and she was in her mid-90s. And as she sat there at the table and we began to share some family stories, we realized that my grandmother was spanning seven generations. She could remember three generations before her and she was seeing four generations downstream at this table. And we were like, that is so incredibly rich. Our children and our grandchildren need the root structure of that kind of identity. There are so many things in our culture trying to push identities on our kids. We have to push back. Our families have important identities. God cares about these generational connections and the identities that he has put in, into our families. He wants to have compassion, not just in our generation, but our, our whole family line. That's the kind of God he is. And so part of this is trying to, trying to capture those family stories. So this is, this is a very just basic tool I want you guys just to be thinking about. Is there some step that you can take to begin to craft a really meaningful, maybe a weekly family meal? If you do that, you will not be able to stop your family from going, becoming a multi-generational family, begin to see itself as a family line to be able to steward those stories. We pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.